All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all here, and uh, again, it's Father's Day, so it's great to see a lot of you come out that uh, aren't always around as much. Well, I, uh, I am by no means a workout guru, uh, fitness expert by any stretch of it. Uh, I played sports a lot growing up, and uh, I usually indulge myself in a good workout about once or twice a year. Uh, but I, uh, I do have the capability of doing a little research about fitness. Uh, when I was in college, there was a, a guy that we were friends with, uh, and he worked out all the time. And when I say worked out all the time, like, was always in the gym, seven days a week, twice a day, guy had, you know, muscles on muscles, could have been on the cover of a fitness magazine. Uh, so so he, 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 he worked out. And I had said to him one time, I said, what happens when you don't work out? And he said, you know, when I don't work out, he said, I got about three days. And then he said, if I haven't worked out in three days anymore at this point, he said, I can start to feel it in my body. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I, I, I can just feel like my body's already starting to get weaker. He said, I, I mentally, I don't feel good about myself. He said, and the only thing that I can do is get myself back into the gym. And as I was going through the message today, I thought, well, that seemed kind of like a pretty drastic thought process. But I said, you know what, let me, let me look into this. And so I started doing some research about what happens when people work out and then they stop working out. Now, bear with me, because at the very end of this message, there will be some positive news about working out. But you might feel pretty bad about yourselves for a while as I go through some of this information, okay? Uh, so one of the first things that starts to happen uh, is they say usually between two to six weeks, the muscles start to atrophy. So your muscles physically start to get smaller two to six weeks after you start working out because what happens is your muscles have, contains all this water and this glycogen, which contains all of like the energy. It's like the storage containers. And when your body stops working out, your body goes, well, you don't need that anymore. So physically, your muscles start to, to experience a shrinkage within just a few weeks. Um, they say you can hold your max strength for about three weeks. After three weeks, your body starts to decline. And then at some point, that, that decline in muscle just takes a real drastic turn. And usually by the time you've hit four months, any sort of muscle strength that you had gained from working out is completely lost. You're, you're back to whatever you were originally. Um, in terms of oxygen level, so if you work out a lot, you, you, you're probably like at 100% of max oxygen. They say that within, within about a month, that 100% drops to 25%. And the reason is, is you have these little tiny sacs in your lungs that when you work out, you produce more of them and it holds more and more oxygen. That, that's why you're in better shape, right? That's why you have a better intake of oxygen. And then as you stop working out, those tiny air sacs start to go away. The other problem is, all of the capillaries that connect the blood to those tiny air sacs start to go away, which means now you have less blood flowing to the rest of the rest of your body, you have less oxygen flowing to the rest of your body, and then your heart is no longer working as hard, so now your heart starts to get weaker as well. So that happens within a month. Uh, here's a shocking one. They say within two weeks, your blood pressure 
can go back to pre-workout conditions. So if you're somebody that is like, I have high blood pressure and you start working out, they say two weeks that blood pressure can go back to what it was before. So it really is imperative that like you keep working out, keep working out. Um, your sleep quality, people who work out tend to get about 45 minutes of sleep more a, day, a night because you fall asleep flash, faster and you stay asleep longer. And not only that, but they say people who work out, they, they, they have different levels of sleep, and they say people who work out, only 20% of those people get bad nights of sleep. People who don't work out, they say it's closer to 50 and 60%, which means just about every other night if you're not working out, you're not getting a good night's sleep, and we all know good sleep keeps to help the crankies away, right? Um, and and uh, just two more, uh, obviously, when we don't work out, we burn fewer calories, and so then what happens is, is our body starts to store them as fat, right? So we start to gain weight. And the last thing, when we stop working out, our body produces endorphins, which is the, the make you feel good chemical in your brain. So literally, when you stop working out, you become depressed, okay? And that's essentially probably where a lot of you are at now, because you're like, I haven't worked out in a long time, and the state of depression has set in, right? So when we don't do this, right, so we work out and we stop, our bodies quickly regress to a state of where it was before. Now, as I said, there, there's going to be some positives about all of this, but we just got to hang on to that until the very end of the sermon, and then hopefully you'll feel better about yourselves at the end. But that gets us now to our scripture today. So if you have the Bibles, again, you guys can open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Again, we've been going through this book. Uh, God has, uh, the author has been speaking to a group of people uh, about why Christ is better than anything they can imagine. Again, they're kind of wallowing. What do we do? Christ is better than the angels, the prophets, Abraham, Joshua, Moses. Uh, and then he interweaves in these these different warnings as well. So we've looked at two warnings so far, and the first one is don't drift, don't hear the message and not give it any thought, and the second warning was don't disobey, right? Don't disobey God because in our disobedience, that leads to rebellion, and then ultimately rebellion is going to lead to death. So now we're going to come to the third warning today. Again, he's warning a group of people who are in a state of persecution, uh, living amongst a, a pagan culture, you know, wondering, is it worth it to keep following Christ? And so he's going to give this third warning here. So Hebrews chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 11, he says, we have much to say to you about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God, God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is more for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So really in this section, what he's doing is he's actually kind of chastising the people here. He says, look, in the previous section, I just talked about the high priest, and I mentioned this guy, Melchizedek, and I want to talk more about him, but you know what? Here's the reality. You don't have enough knowledge of the scriptures. You don't have enough knowledge of God's word that if I try to make this comparison between Christ and Melchizedek, the high priest, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about, okay? And so... He says, you guys are slow to learn, you're dull in hearing. He says, literally, you are lazy 
in your thinking. That's where you guys are at right now. Now, the book of Hebrews, again, was probably written around the late 60s, which, uh, which means they have seen Jesus' ministry, they have seen his death, they have seen his resurrection, they have seen his ascension. They have seen the miracles of God, and by this point, the gospel has begun to spread throughout the various parts of the Roman Empire. Churches have been established throughout the various parts of the Roman Empire. So what he's saying here is, he says, look, there is no excuse there is a solid foundation of discipleship that should be happening in your lives at this point. But you guys are nowhere close to that. Okay? And when he, he talks, he says, he says, you guys should literally be teachers at this point. You should know God's word so well that you should be able to communicate to each other. But that's not what's happening with you. Instead, he says, listen, he, he says, I have to teach you the elementary truths. And that phrase, elementary truths, is literally the idea of building something in a row. So what he's actually saying is, I have to reteach you your ABCs. That's where you are at in life right now. Okay? And he's not even done there. He then basically starts calling them babies and infants. He says, listen, you should be on solid food at this point, but instead you're still drinking milk. Now, if you don't know anything about how babies work, again, I did a little research, okay? Usually the first three months, milk formula, that's, that's what an infant's on. Then they progress to pureed food, and usually by the time you get to seven months, it's time for Cheerios and crackers. By the time you hit a year, right, kids have developed to a state of solid food, right? You know, you bust out the birthday cake and they dive in. So what's he saying to them? He says, listen, you are the, in, the, in, the, in the complete state of infancy. You are the lowest level of a human being because you are stuck on milk. You need solid food, but I can't give you that because you haven't developed to that point. Quite frankly, what we have is what we call arrested development. It is a premature condition where the brain mentally stops growing. And so what we have is adults living in a world where they're acting like children, right? They, they show up to work and they've got their suits and they've got their briefcases and they go to their board meeting and they sit down and they pull out their blankets and pacifiers. He says, that's where you guys are at in life. That's the problem that we have right now. I can't explain Christ any more to you because you just can't handle it because you haven't been doing what you've been supposed to be doing this entire time. And the problem with this, he says, listen, he says, you guys then are not able to distinguish good from evil. See, when we are not developed in our state of the word of God, we are vulnerable to evil. We are susceptible to the schemes of Satan because we can't figure out what's right and wrong. And we just take whatever the world tells us and we go, oh, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I guess that's okay. And instead, we've fallen into this pit of lies. 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 14 tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Right? It's really easy to identify the monster and know when to run away, isn't it? He's big, and he's, he's ugly, and he's snarling, and he looks disgusting. But it's hard to decipher when Satan is lurking around when he looks like an angel of light. And when we haven't progressed in the word of God, he says, that's the problem, guys. 
You're not, you're not making constant use of the word of God and you're constantly finding yourselves in this position of evil and sin. And that's what he's trying to help these individuals understand about their spiritual maturity and their spiritual walk. Now, we, we, we understand that in Ephesians 2.8, right, we, we are saved by our faith, but there is a constant encouragement to us that we are to progress in our faith, right? That's what we call sanctification, the, the ongoing growing into the holiness and godliness of Christ. And 1 Peter 2.1 says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow in your salvation and know that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right? We, we should be progressing in who we are. So again, he wants to make this comparison, but he can't. So now he comes to the next part, and he's, he says, let me give you a reality check. This, this is where you should be in your understanding. So now we're in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, therefore... Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So he says, listen, we need to move beyond these elementary principles. We need to move beyond the ABCs. We have to build on that, and we have to progress in our knowledge and who Christ is. And so he kind of lumps it into these three sections. And the first part there, right, we have to move beyond the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. Remember, the Israelites were consumed with the law. Right? And in many of their minds, it was that strict obedience to the external commands of the law that by following them, they believed that they were justified in their righteousness when the reality was, no, it is the law that condemns you and proves that you are unrighteous. But many of them were still stuck in that state. And he said, you should be moving on to the point where that you understand that your salvation, your righteousness is only gained through your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, right? We we obey out of worship to God. We do not obey the commands of God to earn his righteousness. And that was the problem they were stuck in for many of them. The second thing he talks about this idea of baptisms and laying on of the hands. Now, now, the word baptism, again, we often think in the Christian sense where you're getting dunked and, and it's the symbolic uh, you know, understanding of what's internally going on. It's a public declaration. That's not what he's talking about here because, one, he's using baptisms as plural, and, two, it's not the actual word that is typically used in the New Testament when we talk about that kind of water baptism. What he's trying to get them to understand is So many of them were consumed with ceremonial washing, right? And again, that was an adherence to the law. And he's saying to them, guys, you are so stuck that every time you you, you sin or every time you go to eat, you have to wash like this. He goes, you should be beyond that point. That's not part of who we are anymore, right? Christ has cleansed us. We don't have to keep doing all of these ceremonial washings. And then the second thing he says is about the laying on of hands. Now, 
in Jewish culture, laying on of hands was oftentimes an identification piece, right? They would lay hands on, on, on the future king of Israel. They, they'd lay hands on future prophets. Uh, and a lot of times when there were sacrifices, they would lay hands on the sacrifices as a way to identify, you know, essentially my sins are now laid upon this animal that's going to be sacrificed. And he says, guys, the laying on of hands that we now talk about is the identification that we have with the Holy Spirit, that we are identified with the Holy Spirit and how it imparts to us gifts that we are now able to use for his kingdoms. And then lastly, he talks about the idea of the resurrection of the dead and this eternal judgment. When we talk about the resurrection of dead, this is what a lot of us understand as the tribulation, that, that this, 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 this being brought home before the tribulation begins. And then when he talks about the eternal judgment, he's talking about how Christ is going to come back and he's going to, to physically reign and institute his millennial reign for a thousand years. And then after those thousand years, Satan will be released. He will engage God's people into a war of which God will finally deal with him and he will be thwarted and he will be thrown into the, the fiery gates of hell. And then all of those people will then stand before God and give judgment to him. And those who have professed faith shall live eternity. And those who have denied him will also be cast into the fiery pits. He said, this is the reality check, guys. If you guys can articulate those types of truths, then yes, you are progressing. But he's saying to them, I know you have no idea what any of this is. And that's my frustration with you. That's why I'm so upset with you right now. Because again, you should be well, well versed in, in your understanding, but you're not because you're lazy, because you're dull and you just don't seem to care about what's going on. Now, what's interesting is at the end of that part, he says, if God permits, and I don't want to gloss over that. Because one factor we have to understand is the only way that we understand the truths of God is by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has given us. Right. So, so if we have the Spirit... The Spirit can enlighten us to understanding His Word, and we should be progressing and moving in that. And you have the Spirit. You should be progressing then in what you're doing. And the second thing is, we also have to remember, guys, that every day for us is a gift. We don't always get a second chance. There is not always an opportunity for us to re-engage the Lord when we have wandered or walked away or, or when we've not taken Him seriously. Right? When, when, Moab, when Noah was called to, to build the ark, they, they say it was probably roughly around somewhere about 100 years it took him to build that. So for 100 years, Noah is building this boat, and he's building this boat, and I have to imagine that people are wondering, Noah, what are you doing? And he's probably saying judgment is coming. God is going to flood the earth. And guess what? At some point, God flooded the earth, and there was no more warnings. That was it. And so if God permits us, we should take every day as a gift to re-engage that relationship with him, 
right? We, we can't keep saying, let me put it off further down the road because you may not have further down the road. Tomorrow may be it. Tonight may be it. I have no idea when it is, but we don't always get a second chance in life. And he's trying to impress this upon them about the serious nature of what's going to happen here. All right, so, so now he says, I, I've chastised you. I told you where you should be at. And now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen if you progress in the nature of what you're going. So now we continue here, verse 4. He says, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because God, because to their own loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful for, for those whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is danger of being cursed and in the end it will be burned. So he kind of gives this poetic list of experiences and he says, look, I'm going to throw this out to you. If somebody professes Christ and then they choose to walk away, they choose to fall away, there's going to be a place where there's no more repentance. There's a place where you're no longer able to be brought back into the fold of God. And a lot of times I think this is where we use the term apostasy, right? We talk about someone being an apostate, right? Someone who has rejected the saving power of Jesus Christ, who has denied his salvation. And it's somebody a lot of times that we think somebody that perhaps has seemed to profess or seems to have believed and then for whatever reason has now chosen to go back. And so he lists these things there. He says, look, he says, if you've been enlightened, if you've come to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, right? If you've come to understand salvation, if you've come to taste the gift, the gift of Jesus Christ, if you have shared in the Holy Spirit, in the goodness of his word, understanding how God's word has influenced and impacted and guided your life, and if you have experienced the comings of the, pow- of the powers of the coming age, that you, you've washed his hand, work, you've seen the miracles, guys. Guys, if you've been a part of all of this and now you turn your back, th- there's, there's no coming back to that. There, there's no like being resaved all over again. It's as if you're constantly crucifying Christ day after day after day with your sins. Now, please understand, what I'm not suggesting is that Christ can't save people. That's not what I'm suggesting here. But when we talk about it in this sense, what we are trying to say is, these are people who are choosing not to accept the saving grace of Jesus Christ, right? If you choose to reject that, there is no way for you to be saved, Okay, because that is the only way for salvation. Okay? So anybody willing to come to Christ can find that salvation. But if you reject Christ in that regards, there's nothing left for you. And we see that also in Romans 1. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and in their foolish hearts they were darkened. 
They claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to be made like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. So when we talk about apostasy, we're talking about someone who reaches a state of abandonment and moral corruption that deliverance is no longer possible and the only inevitable state that we have is eternal damnation. That's the place. That is the warning here that this author is trying to say to them, guys. Guys, if you don't do anything with your faith, you're really not progressing, and all you're doing is actually regressing in who you are. I mean, he's used a couple times in the previous chapters where he's talked about the Israelites and their, and their wandering in the desert. Well, remember in Exodus 32, Moses is there and he's got the law and he comes down and what have all the people have done? They, they've started to worship this golden calf and, 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 and God is about ready to strike them down and, and he says, you call out to the people. And Moses says, if anybody is for God, you will come to me now. And guess what? There was a contingency of people that chose not to do that. And it said on that day, 3,000 were slaughtered. And that's what he's trying to impress upon them. He says, guys, you, you have heard the word of God. You, you, are, you are in the midst of the people of the word of God. You, you have seen the miracle in what God has done. And now you're going to turn back from him? And I think this is a warning for us because there are many of us that can give the appearance of godliness, right? There are many of us that can act the Christian lifestyle. You know, there are a lot of us who can show up to church, who can actually serve in the name of God, who have given a profession of faith who have said that they were sorry for the things that they've done. But there's never actually been any progression in their life. There's never actually been any maturing in who they are as a believer. They really are continuing to live the same lifestyle that they've lived before, and all they've done is just put on a facade for everyone else. Because the, the word of God has not actually reached into their hearts and minds. And all they're doing is playing the part of a Christian and instead of actually worshiping Christ. That's, that's the warning that he gives to us as well. And he goes a little bit further and he gives this analogy of farming now. And he says, listen, sometimes it rains. And when that rain comes upon the land... That land is expected to produce a crop. And when that crop comes, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to the farmer. But he says, what happens when the rain comes on that land and nothing is produced except thorns and thistles? He says, all we have are these worthless things. And what do we do with them? They are to be burned up. Because when we burn the worthless plants and crops, the thorns and thistles, we make way for the good stuff to come back. 
And so for, for some, professing Christ is a token gesture of what they think is, is saving goodness. But following Christ, guys, is a lifelong commitment. We see that in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When we, when we take up our cross, it was a symbolic idea that you were accepting the authority that was above you. It, it, it is a submission to the will of God in every capacity of your life. That's what it means to follow Christ. Each and every single day, I submit my life to him. His will is my will. What I think, what I do, what I act, every decision that I make, every word that is uttered from my lips is going to be because I want to honor and follow Christ. And that word worthless means that we have failed the test, right? The, those crops failed to produce. The apostate has failed to follow Christ. They say they wanted to, but they never truly actually did with their heart. And John the Baptist, when he spoke of Christ in Matthew 3, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Right? He's going to take those parts that are good, and they will enter into his kingdom. And the worthless parts are going to be consumed by the fire. And so in the end... What do we say about Christ, about his divinity and sovereignty and lordship in our lives? Because one day, right, we, Christ is going to separate his sheep. And those that are not his are going to find the eternal damnation of hell. But those that call him Lord and Savior, who follow him until the end, who have truly given their hearts to him, will find the blessings of the eternal kingdom forever and ever. So this is the warning. A people who are caught in a, a place of stagnation, failing to mature, a state of arrested development, they have not progressed in who they are towards the holiness of God. They've heard, they've seen, they've experienced, they've read all about his word. They've even shared in the experience of the powers of the Holy Spirit, but really all they're doing is trampling the treasures of Christ. They, they were there within the realm and the, severe, uh, the sphere of God's blessing and divinity. They were on the cusp of redemption. They were amongst the people of God day in and day out, hearing it, but never choosing to accept it within their hearts. And it never transformed who they were. He says, that's the warning. That I, am, I am deathly serious about this. He says, I don't want this to happen to you. So now he gives the encouragement. He lays it on pretty good for them. But he says, let, let me stop here. So now he continues, verse 9. 
He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those through faith and patience, inheriting what is promised. He says, okay, he says, let me stop, guys. He says, I'm sorry if I might have come on a little strong for you. I'm sorry if I had a harsh tone with you. I, I apologize for that, but he said, again, you have to realize what I'm talking about and the nature of this is so critical. But I do it because I care and I love about you. So, so, so here's the good news of all of this. Here's the positive part of all of this. He says, we have something better, guys. We have something better in this world. And it accompanies salvation. And that something better is Jesus Christ. That, that's the better thing than anything you can think about. Remember, they're, 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 they're vacillating. They're, they're, they're going back and forth. Do I follow Christ? Do I not follow Christ? Do I follow the ways of the world? Do I go back into Judaism? Do, do I go back to the wall? Is that how I find my salvation? And he's saying, no, 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 it is Christ. It is Christ. It is Christ alone. And he says, guys, listen, I know what you're going through. You're going through hardships and trials and suffering and persecution. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. So if you're thinking of going back to something else because you don't think he's there, guys, you are wrong. God is faithful to us to the end. He will not go back on his promise. The promise to, for, for us to, to receive the blessing of his kingdom. That is always there for us. You know, I, I find it interesting that oftentimes when we go through hard things in life, why does it seem the first thing we always want to give up on is God and the church? I mean, the reality is when things get hard, isn't that the first place we should be running to? We should be going to the Heavenly Father and to our church family and crying out and saying, I need help. But so often, that's the first thing we want to get rid of. And so the encouragement there is this. He says, guys, don't give up. Don't quit. Keep going. Keep running the race of faith. Keep seeking out the word of God. Keep worshiping. Keep fellowshiping. Keep, keep praying to, to, to the God in heaven. He hears you. Because when we do that, it makes our hope secure. And that hope is the full assurance of the promise of God that says we are his children. You know, I started talking again about how when we don't work out, what happens to our bodies, right? And there was a pretty long list of things that happen when we stop working out. But here's the one encouraging thing that I found. Our muscles contain what's called myonuclei. 
and it helps to regulate the cells in our muscles. And those cells determine how fast our bodies can build muscle again. And they say that when you stop working out, they can exist in your body for about 15 years, and in some cases, an entire lifetime. So what that means is this, that, that, that if, if we have stopped working out, the moment you start back up again, your body actually has the ability to get back into shape faster than it normally would. And it's the same thing with our faith in Christ. Guys, if you feel like, you know what? I haven't taken Christ seriously. I haven't done anything with my faith in a long time. I'm the guy that, that has wandered and I've backslid and, and I've walked away and I, I saw and I heard and I knew everything and I said, yes, this is going to be great. And then I've decided to follow the ways of the world because I thought that was something better in my life. The beauty of it is Christ is always there. You know, in the previous chapters, he said, today, 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 if you hear the word of God, well, guess what? That's no different here, guys. You are hearing the word of God right now that says continue to seek him with your whole heart. That continues to say, guys, get back into the word of God if that's what you need to do. Get back into the fellowship of the church. Get back into prayer. Utilize the gifts that have given you. Because when we do that, we are producing the crop of blessing, not only to us, but to one another and ultimately for his kingdom. Psalm 34, 8 tells us, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fully tasting Christ, guys, is the sweetest thing you will ever experience in your life. And just as the author is pushing us on towards maturity, the more that you taste God, the more delicious he becomes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a tremendous God. Lord, your word is, is true and it is sharp. And Lord, it can be challenging to hear those words of apostasy, to, to hear the reality of what a, a life neglecting you looks like. But that's not what you desire, Lord. Lord. Lord, you have offered us every blessing in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's not a, a one shot over and done with, but Lord, it is Christ now and forever. In every stage of our lives as we walk with Christ is the greatest blessing that we can ever find. And Lord, if we are sitting here thinking that there is something better in this world, we are sadly mistaken. And I pray that your spirit would come and convict us of where we have followed, where we have wandered, where we have, have chosen to taste something else that is only bitter and sour. 
May we spurn one another on for your goodness and glory. And may we be captivated by who you are and your blood on the cross. Amen.